once again this week, we are, have been reminded that things are broken. And so while we weep with our brothers and sisters in South Carolina, and while we witness the glory of Christ and the testimony of Christ in the survivors who are willing to forgive the unforgivable, we cannot escape the reality that something is wrong, something is broken. There's a whole lot of blame going on. It is blame disguised as solutions, but this blame that is disguised as solutions simply reveal our helplessness. People will say our problem is that we need more laws. Others will say we need fewer laws. We already have enough. Democrats blame Republicans and Republicans blame Democrats. I'm not sure who the independents blame. We blame flags and symbols. We say that the problem is medications or lack of medications or inability to recognize troubled individuals. These are not solutions. They are simply humanity's feeble attempt at a solution when the real problem is ignored. You see, the real problem is the heart. And laws or lack thereof, political parties, medications and symbols do not cure broken hearts, lost hearts. But to acknowledge that the problem is a heart problem is to admit that our remedies are inadequate. All of these things demand that we look outside of ourselves. To admit that the heart is the problem demands that we look outside of ourselves. To a place where sinful hearts are the cause. You see, the sinful heart prefers laws. The sinful heart prefers rules. The sinful heart prefers symbols, but these are not the answer to the problem. And it is because of sinful hearts that Christ came into the world, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And sin is a matter of the heart. He died for us so that he would do what you and I are unable to do ourselves. And so the events in South Carolina, as well as across the world, serve as a reminder that things are broken. And so how do you fix the human heart? What else can you do? What must I do to fix the brokenness? Galatians provides for us an answer. Galatians provides for us that the remedy is a new heart. A reborn heart. Galatians reminds us, however, that that new heart does not come from new laws or new symbols or new medications, but it comes from a divine source. It comes from God and it comes from God alone and that that new heart is given to us by grace. That is, God does for us what we cannot do ourselves. And the problem is, is that we keep striving to do for ourselves and answer our own problems. 
And so God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the work of God is sufficient. And the work of God is by grace. And so we continue our study in the book of Galatians. And Paul is... Let me just remind you of where we began last week as we began the book of Galatians. The occasion for Paul writing this letter to the Galatian churches is that false teachers have come in and perverted the gospel of grace. They have presented a different gospel. And so Paul is writing quickly to establish that the gospel that these false teachers are proclaiming needs to be dealt with. The other issue that Paul is dealing with is that he is defending both himself as a messenger of the gospel as well as his message. You see, as we talked about last week, if you can diminish the messenger, you can diminish the message. If you can say that Paul doesn't know what he's talking about, then you can simply make that jump to the message that Paul is preaching also is invalid. If Paul is invalid, his message is invalid. And so that's what's going on. These false teachers are not only denying the message, but they are going after the messenger. And so Paul spends a fair amount of time dealing with, I am a true messenger of the gospel. We'll begin that in two weeks. Paul's defense that I am a true messenger of the gospel and therefore my message is accurate. And so Paul has been going through this, these areas to these churches. Uh, his first missionary journey was from here in Antioch and he kind of goes up into Derby, Iconium, um, Antioch, Pisidia and all of these areas. This is to whom this letter is written. These churches, it is not written to an individual church. It is written to a group of churches and it is to be, I believe it is a circular letter that would be passed around. So that's where we've been. Let me give you where I hope to go today. Just a quick preview that it is important for you and I as Christians to believe that any legalistic teaching is beyond comprehension and deserves a swift rebuke. So Paul is going to uh, swiftly come and say that any teaching that says Jesus and needs to be shut down and shut down harshly and quickly. Our need for this particular lesson today, our need for verses 6 and 7 of the first chapter of Galatians is so that you and I would be able to identify distorted gospels. I mean, really, we have to ask the question, can you, can you identify a distorted gospel? Many of them are very subtle because Satan and false, false teachers do not come to us with a neon green T-shirt saying false teacher. They're going to look like pastors and elders and deacons and church members, musicians, Bible study teachers, faithful attenders. That's what they're going to look like. Would you know that the gospel that somebody is teaching is true or false? It's important that we identify that. Hopefully today we will help help you with that. The other reason we need this is because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That is, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Any false gospel then does not save. This is going to be Paul's point today and throughout the book. Every false gospel 
and he'll, we'll get to that. There is really no other gospel, but humor me for a moment. A false gospel will not save. It will only leave you with the false assurance that you are saved. And that's a terrible state to be in. There are murderers and flagrant sinners who will say, yeah, I don't believe that. And if there is a heaven or hell, I'm on my way to hell. They will tell you that. But somebody with a false gospel believes they actually are saved. And Paul is getting right to the core. A false gospel has a false Jesus and that cannot save you. And since it is the gospel that saves, if you have a false gospel, you are deluded. You are deluded and you think that you are safe, but you are not safe. And so we need this to understand what is the true gospel? Because it is only the gospel that saves. So with that, let's go ahead and I'd like to read. I'm actually going to read verses one through ten today, and then we'll look at verses 6 and 7. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by grace, by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I still striving to please men? If I were still striving, trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This is God's word. First thing we should consider as we look at this text is not what does it say, but what is missing? What does Paul not say? It's very uh, interesting what Paul does not say in this particular letter. Paul goes through the normal formalities. I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He introduces the churches. And normally then there's some flowery speech in most of his letters. He kind of praises the people. Paul doesn't do that. He gets straight to the point. So what is missing is important. Uh, We noted last week that this is an angry letter. It is also an urgent letter. And I think we see the urgency here. I don't have time for flowery speech. I don't have time for niceties. I don't have time for pleasantries. People are going to hell and we need to deal with this situation right now. I will not waste a single moment. Because there's a false gospel deluding people and we need to get straight to the point. And so Paul gets straight to the point. We love the book of Galatians. He does not beat around the bush. And so Paul gets straight to the point and he says, I'm amazed that you are so quick, quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. I learned a new word this week. It's not a fancy theological word, which I normally give to Arvid. And then he writes down diligently and memorizes them. And, but I did, learn a very, I did learn a new word this week. It is the word gobsmacked. 
It is a from kind of the northern British Isles, Scottish area slang term for mouth, which is gob. Don't ask me how. I, how it got that. And smacked. Mouth smacked. It has the idea of somebody putting their hand over their mouth in surprise or in amazement. Gobsmacked. Macaulay Culkin. Right? Like my kid up here. Gobsmacked. Amazement. Flabbergasted. Paul is gobsmacked. I am amazed, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Paul is amazed, this idea of quickly deserting. Paul's amazed by two things. He's amazed, number one, that the Galatians are deserters. And number two, he's amazed at the speed at which they've deserted. And this idea of of, uh, how quickly you have turned or deserting, that's a great, that's a very strong term. And it really has to do with somebody who changes allegiance. It was used in military speech. It was used in in the military for somebody who fights for another and then in the middle of battle gets up and turns and starts fighting for the other side. Paul's saying, you're deserters, you're traitors. You're turncoats. You have betrayed your allegiance to Christ and you've gone to another side. And Paul's amazed by that. The other thing that Paul is amazed with is the speed at which this rebellion took place. He's going, this happened quickly. I'm amazed that you would desert Christ, but I'm also amazed, gobsmacked, that you would do so so quickly. If you read Acts chapter 13 and 14, you'll read about Paul's first missionary journey. I would encourage you to read Acts 13 and 14 and probably even 15. Um, to read about Paul's first missionary journey because it was on this missionary journey that Paul founded the churches to which he is writing. These Galatian churches, Paul is writing to those churches that he planted on his first missionary journey. And the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas was really successful. Really successful. I mean, if we did a missionary trip and we came back and reported to you the things that happened on this first missionary journey, there would be dancing in the aisles. That's pretty amazing for a Baptist church, right? But we would. We would be, even us would be emotional. It had been successful. People, mobs of people had been saved. Churches were planted. Miracles were performed. That's quite a missionary trip. And immediately after they left, false teachers came in and infiltrated. And they were believed. So Paul is gobsmacked. I can't believe that you would desert and that you would do so quickly. Don't you remember all these things that happened? Don't you remember what we said? Don't you remember the miracles? Don't you remember all of this? And yet, at the slightest hint... of a different view, you abandon the grace of Christ. I'm gobsmacked. I'm amazed. I'm flabbergasted. We should also note what was abandoned. Actually, to be more accurate, we should note who was abandoned. You see, they did not abandon a a cold orthodoxy. They did not abandon a creed. They did not abandon a teaching or doctrine. They did not abandon some notice on a piece of paper. They did not 
abandon some formal statement of faith. What they abandoned, Paul says, is you've abandoned him who called you. You've abandoned God himself. It's, by abandoning God's message, you have abandoned the messenger who is God himself. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. It's not that you've abandoned some creedal statement or some doctrinal position. You've abandoned the very God who called you. And by turning your back upon God who saves, what, left, what is left for you? Where will you turn? How are you going to be saved? If you turn your back on the God who saves, what's left for you? What can you do? You're in deep trouble. I think it says in the Old Testament, if a man sins against man, he can have a mediator. But if a man sins against God, who can mediate for him? Who can stand in the gap? And if you abandon God and his truth, what's going to be left for you? And so Paul is amazed. Paul is gobsmacked that they have turned and gone to the other side. He is amazed that they have done so um, swiftly. And it is God himself who has been abandoned. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Again, that's Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. You have abandoned him who called you. Let me talk a little bit about this idea of calling by grace. I'm amazed that you have abandoned him who, who has called you by grace. When we talk about calling here, what I am referring to is something specific. Paul is not referring to a general proclamation of the gospel. He is not talking about a preacher who has sent out a gospel message. Sometimes we refer to that as a general call. What Paul is referring to here is what we refer to as an effectual call. It is a call that brings about the willing acceptance of the gospel. It is the call that actually brings about justification. Notice what Paul says. Here's, here's a great example of what I'm talking about. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And those and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the calling I'm talking about. It is the calling that brings about justification that results in eternal life or glorification. That's the calling. It is the calling that brings justification. It is the calling we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. If we can bring that passage up. It is the calling in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, back. There we go. I'm happy right now. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. It is the calling that brings you into the eternal glory with Christ. Our next passage of scripture referring to this calling, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The calling we are talking about is the call that brings you into his own kingdom and to his glory. It is in 1 Peter chapter 2.9. 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is the calling that transfers you from darkness to light, who transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the calling. The other passage of scripture then that we have in Second Thessalonians 2.14. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is called It is the calling then that brings about a willing acceptance of the gospel that brings us into eternal glory, that gains us access into his kingdom, that transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is the calling then that enables us to obtain the glory of Christ. And here's the thing. It is a calling by grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It is God's, this calling is by God's sovereign act. It is not by merit. It is not by virtue. It is utterly and entirely undeserved. And God has called you by grace. All of those things, His eternal glory in Christ, uh, His kingdom and glory, into, out of darkness, into His marvelous light, the glory of Jesus Christ, the justification that we saw in the Romans passage, all of those things by grace. Grace, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Paul is gobsmacked. You've quickly abandoned this? Well, what's left for you? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? There's nothing left for you. This is why Paul, you can see the urgency of Paul's letter. This is why he gets straight to the point. This is why Paul doesn't mess around with niceties and pleasantries. This is what you've left. And if you've left this, there's no hope for you. I need to get this message out. I need to get it out quickly. And it needs to get to the churches of Galatia. But wait. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That is, different of a, something of a different kind. You are abandoning the gospel of grace for something that involves merit, something that involves works, something that involves your virtue. In other words, you need to do something to get those things. It is no longer by grace. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, that this, that well, I'll just read it. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited in righteousness. I want you to note verse 4. You, you, you've abandoned one thing for another, and the other thing is one that requires merit. Now to the one who works, his wage is credited as a as a favor, but it's not credited as a favor, but what is due. In other words, then you end up before the throne of God saying, I have done all these things and now, God, you owe me. You owe me salvation and my God is not a debtor to any man. So I've done all the things I'm supposed to do. I have whatever we want to say. I've had enough faith. I have witnessed to enough people. I have preached enough sermons. I have tithed enough tithes. I have built enough orphanages. And now, God, because of that, here I am and I'm coming in. And God says, well, yeah, I'm kind of in debt to you now. 
That's what Paul's saying in Romans. He's going, that's not the way it works. The way it works is you get in by the mercies and grace of God and by His mercy and grace alone. It is because you believe that He is a merciful Father. So Paul is saying, you've abandoned grace for this. And this is a gospel, this other gospel, it does not save. It cannot save. Because there are not enough good works that will save you. And we talk about this often. Anything that you would have to offer by, to God has been given to you by God, so you're just returning to Him something He's already given you. How, can, how is that of any benefit to God? The gospel that the Galatians are holding to is a gospel that does not save. It simply produces self-righteousness, not God-righteousness. And it produces a false assurance. And so... These people were abandoning the good news about the cross and the empty tomb that God's grace is unmerited favor towards undeserving sinners. They're abandoning that. They are abandoning the fact that the gospel proclaims that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead, that his atoning sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of our sins. His atoning sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of our sins. And this different gospel that they are receiving actually diminishes the glorious work of Christ. It says that you must finish what Christ began. Christ did a good work, but you need to step in and do your part as though Christ's work is not sufficient. This is why next week he says, let that person be cursed. That person comes under God's curse because you are bringing Christ down from his righteous throne in heaven. You're saying your work was great, but here, let me fill up what you lack, Christ. Your sacrifice, your suffering on the cross, what a great act, but it wasn't quite enough. Let me, a human, sinful being, fill up what you failed to do. This brings Christ down. As we saw last Wednesday when we were studying John Bunyan in his conversion story, it was amazing. But when Bunyan came to Christ, he said, I saw in my spirit as though Christ were seated on the throne. And then I realized there is my righteousness. And so Christ is my righteousness. My righteousness is in heaven. My righteousness, if I go on and do great works, my righteousness does not increase. Nor if I fail in my devotion to Christ, my righteousness is not lessened because my righteousness is not based on that. It is based on the King of glory crucified, risen, glorified in heaven. There's my righteousness and He is ever present at the right hand side of the Father. My righteousness does not wane. It does not ebb and flow like I ebb and flow. It does not have good days and bad days. I have good days and bad days, but my righteousness is not dependent upon my good day or my bad day. It is dependent upon Christ who is seated in, in heaven at the right-hand side of the Father. There is my righteousness. Oh, we, should, we can learn much from this. And we diminish Christ and we bring him down when somehow we turn around and say, well, if you do these things, then Christ will love you more. I want you to know something. If you have sinned against Christ, if you are a follower of Christ and you sinned against him this week, your righteousness did not diminish one bit because your righteousness is in heaven with Christ. Christ is your righteousness. Now repent, get up and start living for Christ again. Likewise, if you followed Christ obediently, 
You don't get extra brownie points. Your righteousness didn't get Well, now you're really righteous. No, because your righteousness is already as righteous as it can get. You can't get any better than the righteousness of Christ. And so this is what Paul is saying. You have abandoned this gospel for a gospel that brings Christ down and makes God a debtor to you and says that Christ is not sufficient for, to atone for your sins. And that false gospel will condemn you for eternity. Do you see why Paul is urgent? Do you see the urgency of this message? And so, Paul is flabbergasted. Paul is gobsmacked that the Galatian churches would so quickly abandon the grace of Christ for something else that will do them no good. Paul is flabbergasted. I'm amazed. Why would you do that? And then Paul goes on. He says, you've abandoned the grace of Christ the grace of Christ for a different gospel, then quickly he adds, which is really not another. He wants to make sure, really, there are not other gospels. There's only one gospel. Now, there's a lot of things called the gospel, but there's only one gospel that saves. Everything else, he says, is a distortion. There really is no other gospel, yet there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. So there is only one gospel. Everything else that has the name gospel that does not that is not by grace alone through faith alone is a distortion of the gospel. So, church, let us lay aside this nonsense that there is many ways to achieve righteousness in Christ, many ways that we can please God, many ways to get into heaven. Abandon that nonsense. You may believe it. Just don't call it biblical. It is nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. So just leave that nonsense aside. It is, not, it is not evident in redemptive history. Let's go back to the Old Testament. And God called Abram out of Ur, of the Chaldees, and established Moses, and, and brought up Moses, and he gave the law to Moses. How many ways were there for the, the Jewish community to properly worship God? How many ways? There was one way. This is the way you worship God. You do not get to, you cannot be a sincere worshiper of Baal and say, well, because they're sincere, and I know Baal's a false god, but they're sincere in their worship, and they really, really are nice people. You cannot worship Baal and worship Yahweh. There was only one way. There was only one way to approach God. Now, you could be a, a uh, Gentile and enter into the community of faith. Rahab did that. We saw that in Joshua. Rahab did that. Many people came in and entered into the, the community of faith established by God and began to worship God in accordance with the way he says he is to be worshipped. They entered into salvation uh, by the way that God said that they could enter. But there weren't many ways in. There was one way in. You will notice to access the temple or the tabernacle, there was one door. There weren't multiple doors. You got in one way. You entered into the presence of God one way. So this isn't a New Testament concept. It's, we see its bloom. We see its flower in the New Testament. This is redemptive history. So let's lay aside that nonsense. 
Jesus in the garden says, Father, if there be another way, let this cup pass from me. There was not another way. The cup did not pass. There was only one way, and that was through the sacrificial offering of Christ of himself for the sins of the world. There was no other way. And so we lay aside this, as I said, nonsense. We can claim to be bigoted or exclusive, and yes, we are exclusive, because truth by definition is exclusive. Two plus two is four, all right? It's not four and a half, four point two, or four point zero 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 one. It is four. Truth by definition is exclusive. And Paul is flabbergasted, gobsmacked, that they would depart the gospel that saves for something else that will not save. It is not another gospel. It is a distortion. And he says, these people, there are people who have come upon you. The, the cause of this uh, false teaching is um, there are false teachers who have come. People who have come in and they have disturbed you. Well, who are these people? Well, we can, and what did they teach? Well, we can go, it tells us, um, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, tells us very clearly who these people were. They say this, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is who Paul is dealing with. It is these people who have come down from Jerusalem, probably uh, people who have uh, served God for all of their lives through the old covenant, and now they are saying you need to, you cannot be saved unless you are first circumcised and you follow the law of Moses. Paul calls them troublemakers. They have disturbed you. They are throwing you into confusion and they are troublemakers. And notice these are individuals who actually belong to or mingle with, at least mingle with the church. These, again, are not heretics who have bright neon shirts that say, Hi, I'm a heretic. Hi, I'm teaching a false gospel. They come from amongst the church. Remember when Paul was uh, getting ready to leave Ephesus, he told the elders, he said, As soon as I depart, false teachers will come amongst you just like ravenous wolves. That's what's happened here. I think Paul understands what's going to happen to the Ephesians because he's already experienced it with the Galatians. And they're going to come in and they're going to teach strange, disturbing, perverted doctrines that you are saved by following some other way. These are people who claim to be believers. I think John Stott is correct when he writes, the church's greatest troublemakers are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. And Paul says they distort, they pervert, literally they reverse the gospel. And it was very subtle, very subtle, these were people who would probably, I'm going to kind of imagine, put my, make a, create a scenario that seems somewhat realistic. These would be people who would come to these Galatian churches. Remember, the Galatians had no heritage in Yahweh. They had no um, past experience with the God of the Hebrews. Paul comes and teaches them. And now here comes another group of people. And they say, well, oh, yeah, Paul's been here. Yeah, Paul's a pretty good guy, you know. As far as it goes. 
you know, you know, Paul never really saw the resurrected Christ. He didn't live around Christ. And you remember, he's, he persecuted Christ. And you guys are brand new believers. Let us really kind of fill in what Paul failed to tell you. He gave you a part of the story, but he didn't give you the whole story. Let me fill in for you exactly some of the areas that Paul, you know, either overlooked or perhaps he'll, he'll teach you at another time. But let me share with you some things. You see, um, we've been following God for a thousand years. We have the law. He appeared to Moses and gave us the law. He, he gave circumcision to Abraham. And he said in order to be part of the uh, community of faith, you need to be circumcised. If you want to be part of Abraham's family, you need to be circumcised. That goes back a, thousand, a couple thousand years. And, and God's pretty serious about that. And he gave us dietary laws. I can show you right over here in Leviticus. It says in the Bible, these are the foods you're supposed to eat. And it also says over here in the Bible you're supposed to follow these particular um, holy days. And so Paul seems to have left that out. He's probably a good guy, but I don't think he has it all quite together. And don't you remember when Jesus himself came? Jesus himself said that he didn't come to negate the law, but to fulfill it. All I'm trying to do is help you to fulfill the whole law. I want you to fulfill everything. So you need to be circumcised. Go ahead and follow these, um, these dietary laws and make sure you observe these holy days. And then you're a Christian. See how good that is? And God loves you. If you're a brand new believer, would you? Would you have picked that out as a distortion? These people are so nice. And they're telling us things that, you know, it seemed to really make sense. I mean, Jesus did not come to, he came to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. So what is this thing that Paul's saying? Paul must have been wrong. After all, you know, he claims to have seen Christ, but nobody really knows. He, I mean, that's just his own testimony. He could have made that up. Or maybe he was hallucinating. I don't know. But Paul has this weird idea. He's very subtle. Would you, have, would you have been able to recognize the distortion? Can you recognize a distortion today? I meant I'd initially thought I would go through some various distortions of the gospel, of grace. And I, last night I hit the delete button on that section. Because there are a lot of distortions there's all kinds of distortions. But we probably would be best to take the approach as bankers take when they, I've, I've been told that, you know what, learn the original. Yeah. If you learn the original, you can identify the counterfeit. So I want to present to you the original, all right? The gospel of grace. That is to enter into the Christian walk, to enter into life with Christ, to enter into uh, justification, as we talked about. Justification is just simply God declaring a person not guilty. All right. To enter into a not guilty verdict, you need to believe that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. There it is. And he will save you by, by his grace. You might want to formalize that by saying a prayer. God, I thank you for your grace. And now I believe. 
forgive me of my sins. You may want to formalize it that way. But God is the one who who saves you, and he saves you by grace. Folks, in summary, there is only one gospel that saves. There is only one gospel, and it does save. It actually saves you from your sins. It will deliver you from eternity apart from God. It will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It will allow you to share in the kingdom and the glory of Christ our Lord. It will permit all of those things. It will declare you not guilty, but there is only one gospel that saves, and it is by God's unmerited favor. And that's it. This is an urgent message. It wasn't urgent just for Paul's day. It's urgent for our days. And so I'll I'll close with this. There is no other gospel. There is no other gospel. This means that there is only one way to be saved. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And for this, like Paul, we are unashamed. We are unashamed to proclaim that Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose again from the dead, and that his atoning sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of our sins. I am unashamed of that. And that is the only way of salvation. To abandon the gospel is to abandon the God who gave us the gospel. And that will leave you with no hope. And finally, we have hope. We have hope that Christ died to save sinners and that his work was sufficient. You do not need to add anything to an already sufficient gospel. And so as we remember our brothers and sisters in South Carolina and across the world who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, that our problem, that our issues are not that we need more laws or less laws. Our issue is not that we need to establish or remove symbols or that we need to increase, decrease medications. All of those things may or may not have a place. But the root of the problem is that the heart is broken and the gospel heals that which is broken. And so we affirm with Christ when he died on the cross and he said, it is finished. And for that, we agree. The work of Christ is finished. Glory to God. Amen.